All right, by way of review or introduction, as I've said many times already throughout this series, is that we can look at the, the whole scope of salvation according to three perspectives. We can look at salvation in terms of its arrangement, redemption arranged. And we've already spent some time looking at that quite a few months ago as we looked particularly at the doctrine of election, how God arranged the plan of salvation and its participants. A second way to look at God's plan of salvation is to look at it in terms of its accomplishment, the foundation of salvation. And this focuses on the cross work of Jesus, the atonement that he secured through his death and resurrection. And then the third perspective can be redemption applied. How the arrangement of salvation, the accomplishment of salvation is made real in the life of the elect. How it is made real in the life of the one who would believe in Jesus Christ. Redemption arranged, redemption accomplished, and redemption applied. And we have started this third section uh, several weeks ago, and, and this is going to occupy us now until the end of this series in May. And just to put it in this term, in terms of redemption uh, accomplished, or, or applied, I should say, and we have a problem with our, our screen there, so I will move beyond that. Yeah, that screen there isn't uh, showing it right. But anyway, let me, let me uh, remind you of what we've talked about in terms of the application of redemption, this third element, redemption applied in the life of the sinner. We're talking about here the effectual calling as the gospel call is made effective in its commands. We talked about regeneration when God makes the sinner alive, able to respond to the call of the gospel. We talked about conversion, conversion which is that first breath that we experience of spiritual life. That effect of regeneration is now we experience this repentance, this turn away from sin and faith, the turn towards God. And working together with conversion, though they are, they are distinct things, but connected together with conversion is this component which we call justification. Let me give a summary of what we've covered in the last several weeks and how that leads to what we're talking about this evening with respect to justification. In regeneration, this is MacArthur and Mayhew in biblical doctrine, in regeneration, God performs that divine operation in the sinner's soul whereby he births new spiritual life in him. In conversion, God grants the necessary gifts of repentance and faith by which we are united to Christ and lay hold of the blessings of salvation. Then, in justification, God legally declares that we are no longer deemed 
guilty under the divine law, but are forgiven and counted righteous in God's sight. Now, there's another thing that I need to emphasize before we get into our discussion of justification. And this takes us all the way back to the very beginning of our study when we, when we looked at salvation and the doctrine of salvation in, in general terms. One of the emphases that I made was this, that the components of salvation, particularly as they are applied to us, must be understood according to two kinds of divine activity. So all these different components, whether it's regeneration, justification, adoption, sanctification, glorification, all these elements must be properly understood and categorized according to two kinds of activities or acts that God does to us and in us. The first category, we would say, would be the components of salvation that are judicial in nature. We're going to use the term forensic. They have to do with changes that occur by the declaration of God, by the acts of God, changes that occur in our status, or changes that occur in terms of a a relationship. And the second category of acts are what is called transformational The transformational acts, changes that take place in nature, in our natures, changes that take place in our morality. So when we look at salvation, it's made up of many different components. They're distinct, and yet all of them are part of a whole. All of them belong. You can't remove any of them. But these components have to be understood according to this this twofold categorization. There are some of these components which are judicial and some which are transformational, some which affect our status and some which affect our natures. And that distinction is going to be very important tonight as we talk about the doctrine of justification, as you're going to see in just a few moments. Now, to blur This distinction between these two categories is to drift away from biblical orthodoxy. Because here's the thing, in terms of of the non-evangelical, non-biblical expressions of Christianity, you will find them referring to all the same components that we are referring to in our study. One of the major differences between the evangelical faith, the biblical faith, and all other forms of, of Christianity, all other versions of Christianity that are not truly, essentially biblical, is that it often arises from a blurring of the distinction between these two kinds of acts. And you're going to see that tonight as we talk about the doctrine of of justification. It is particularly evident with the doctrine of justification how important it is that we understand to which category this component belongs, whether to the judicial or to the transformational. And and as we're going to see, this component, this component of justification belongs squarely and only in the category of God's judicial acts with respect to to us. So let's 
Let me me read this quote here. Let's move forward and get a taste of where we're going tonight. This is by John Murray when he says this, Regeneration is an act of God in us. Now, pause there for just a moment. If If the previous slide had worked, I'd show you that regeneration is what we would call a transformational act. It is an act that results in a transformation of nature, of our nature. Something that changes us. So, regeneration is an act of God in us, Murray says. And then he goes on to say this. Justification is a judgment of God with respect to us. The distinction is like that of the distinction between the act of a surgeon and the act of a judge. The surgeon, when he removes an inward cancer, does something in us. But that is not what a judge does. He gives a verdict regarding our judicial status. If we are innocent, he declares accordingly. The purity of the gospel is bound up with the recognition of this distinction. If justification is confused with regeneration or sanctification, then the door is open for the perversion of the gospel at its center. Justification is still the article of the standing or falling of the church. End quote. What John Murray is referring to here is what really was at the heart of the Reformation. And the two main positions during the Reformation expressed the understanding of of justification differently according to these two kinds of acts of God. The Roman Catholic Church, as I'll go on a little bit later to to point out in more detail, the Roman Catholic Church said that justification is a transformative act. I'll explain why that's such a big problem in, in just a few moments, but that's what the Roman Catholic Church taught, and it it uh, further underscored that with the Council of Trent, and today continues to teach that justification, according to Roman Catholic dogma is a transformational act and therefore it's a process because it's transformation but the reformers split with rome particularly over this issue in that they returned to the scriptures and studied the terminology and realized that justification is not a transformational act like regeneration or sanctification justification is a judicial act. It is an instantaneous declaration that is made by God. I'll define that more, but that is what was at the heart of the Reformation. And so Martin Luther said this about the doctrine of justification and understanding it properly. He said, because if this article stands, the church stands. If this article collapses, the church collapses. So important is the doctrine of justification and our understanding of it. John Calvin echoed the same sentiment. He said this regarding justification. It is the main hinge on which religion turns. He's speaking of true religion. And he says, 
the principal, he says it is the principal article of the whole doctrine of salvation and the foundation of all true religion. To put it in the words of a more contemporary theologian, Wayne Grudem, he said this, a true view of justification is the dividing line between the biblical gospel of salvation by faith alone and all false gospels of salvation based on good works. Now, that is an introduction. Let's now define what justification is. In fact, as we talk about key terms and and definitions related to this topic, I want us to look at three important terms or or concepts tonight and define those carefully. The first one is justification. The second one is imputation. And the third concept is what is called infused righteousness. And that's a Roman Catholic teaching, and and I need to define it because that's really where our understanding of justification is going to clash with that concept. Justification, imputation, and infused righteousness. Three very important terms to understand. First, justification. What is justification? Let me begin with a more simple definition by John Murray. He said this, in a word, justification is simply a declaration or pronouncement respecting the relation of the person to the law which he, the judge, is required to administer. End quote. Once again, justification is simply a declaration or pronouncement respecting the relation of the person to the law which he, the judge, is required to administer. So this is law court terminology. It it, it relates to, to, to legal issues. And justification is actually a term that doesn't just appear in the Bible, but in, in legal proceedings. And we won't get into all that, but, but this is law court terminology. If we define it even further, this is a much more comprehensive definition, and I like it. It's given by Brian Vickers, and he describes it this way. Justification is, quote, the legal declaration from God that a person stands before him forgiven and as one who lives up to the entirety of God's will. It absolutely depends on turning by faith away from one's own works to receive God's verdict of righteous in Christ as a pure gift. End quote. Let's pull that apart a little bit. Now, notice that both of these definitions emphasize that it's a proclamation. It is a declaration, a pronouncement. Understand that. Justification is a pronouncement. It's a verdict. Secondly, in both of these definitions, even though the the term is not used, it's implicit. The term that we need to understand related to justification is that it is instantaneous. It's not a process. Justification, according to these definitions, and as we will see in Scripture, is not something that is going to take place over an indefinite period of time. 
It's a verdict. And you can think of it as a courtroom when that verdict is given and the, the gavel comes down. It's, it's done. It's instantaneous. The verdict is done. You can even look at it in this way. And, you know, at a, at, a, at a wedding ceremony, you have a couple that stands be, be, before the pastor. And up until the moment, he says, by the power vested in me by the state, I now pronounce you husband and wife. Before that moment, they are not husband and wife. They are still two separate individuals. But the moment, that instantaneous moment when he finishes that verdict, that statement, they are now husband and wife. This is the same idea that we find in justification. The moment God makes the declaration, it is done. It's instantaneous. So it's a declaration, it's instantaneous. It is done by God And it relates to the sinner. And there's two components, as we're going to see as we continue our study this evening. But the two components of this verdict is that that the sinner's unrighteousness is forgiven. But not only that, but the sinner now enjoys the status of being righteous. That's all enveloped here in this definition. And then finally, the final idea is this. This is all according to grace. Nothing according to the merit of the sinner. Has nothing to do with what he has done to make himself righteous. He's not righteous. It's nothing according to his worthiness to receive this pronunciation, this verdict. It's all a gift. Let me read that last definition by Vickers once again. Justification is, quote, the legal declaration from God that a person stands before him forgiven and as one who lives up to the entirety of God's will. It absolutely depends on turning by faith away from our own works to receive God's verdict of righteous in Christ as a pure gift. Now, as we've seen, justification deals directly with the issue of righteousness. Justification is a judicial declaration, a judgment that is made by God who is perfectly righteous in nature concerning the sinner who is wholly, totally unrighteous in his nature. And, and justification responds to these kinds of, of questions that you may be asking. You probably asked it in your own life. You may hear others ask it. These are all very, very good questions, but here are two of them. One, is, one of them is this. How can a sinner attain a right relationship with a righteous God? A sinner who is completely different in nature, in, in terms of moral nature from God, who has fallen far short of the glory of God. How can a sinner attain a relationship of peace with this righteous God? Or another way to put the question is this. What can be done about the stain of guilt on the the sinner's record? The, The sinner has committed untold crimes, innumerable and, and they are listed on his record. And he is guilty. 
what can be done about the record? And you might say, well, he just believes in the gospel. We talked about that last week. Faith, right? Just believe in the promises of God. Yes, but faith doesn't remove the guilt. Faith doesn't atone for the guilt. Faith doesn't clean the record. Something more is needed. And this is what justification does. It answers these questions. Now, to see this judicial nature of justification, uh, let's look at some some basis for this, even in Scripture. Romans chapter 8, verse 33. Here's a a good text that, that indicates the judicial nature of this concept of justification. Romans 8, verse 33. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Did you see the judicial idea here? Who will bring a charge? This is courtroom type, type, uh, courtroom type language. Who will bring an accusation against God's elect? And the response is God is the one who justifies. God is the one who gives the verdict righteous. To justify, the term that's used there, that is used in in this context, is the Greek term dikaiao. Dikaiao. It's used many places throughout the New Testament, but especially in the book of Romans. And this term does have a range of meaning. It can mean different things, and I'll touch on that near the end of our study tonight. But the most commonly used nuance of this term is, as I've said, is the nuance of to declare righteous. An example of this is found in Luke chapter 7, verses 28 and 29, where Jesus makes this this statement about John the Baptist. Verse 28, he says, I say to you, among those born of women, there is none greater than John, yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And in verse 29 of John says this, when all the people and the tax collectors heard this, they acknowledged God's justice. Now, that's the NASB translation. They acknowledged God's justice. But a literal translation there would be, they justified God. They justified God. What what does that mean? It's certainly, you cannot say that that's transformational in nature. That they somehow did something to change the nature of God. That's not what justification means in that, that context. Rather... What it means is they declared God righteous. Now, God already has inherent righteousness, but this is simply a description of how the people, when they're listening to Jesus' teaching, responded by saying, yes, indeed, God is righteous. They gave a declaration. And that's this concept behind most of the uses of this verb, dikaiao, in the New Testament. Moreover, it's also helpful to see that this term justification will occur in contexts where the term condemnation is also found. And so justification, and this is very important, justification is the antithesis of condemnation. 
Okay, keep that in mind. That relates to how we understand salvation. It relates to how we understand what's going on through justification. If you can't define justification, you probably can't define condemnation. And so when you see this concept of justification applied to salvation, just know justification is the exact opposite of condemnation. So, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 1, we see the concept of justification put in juxtaposition to the concept of condemnation. Moses writes, if there's a dispute between men and they go to court and the judges decide their case, they are to justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. And again, courtroom terminology. Now that's brought into Paul's discussion in Romans, and we read this in Romans chapter 5 verse 16. Paul says this, the gift of salvation is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression transgression resulting in condemnation. Adam sinned, and that sin brought about condemnation. The pronouncement, the verdict of condemned, guilty, sinner, unrighteous. But notice what Paul goes on to say. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. Now, Paul's logic is quite intricate there, and we're not going to spend a lot of time right now on that text, but you can see the distinction between condemnation and justification. Condemnation is when God condemns the sinner, calls him guilty, gives him that verdict. Justification is the opposite. When God renders his verdict that the sinner is righteous. This leads Wayne Grudem to say this. It is important to emphasize that this legal declaration in itself does not change our internal nature or character at all. This is why theologians have also said that justification is forensic where the word forensic means having to do with legal proceedings. So as I said, it's important to note that justification, this legal declaration, does not change the nature of the one justified. In other words, justification does not make us righteous. does not make us good. It declares us righteous. And there is a difference. Again, quoting from John Murray, he says this, Justification does not mean to make righteous or good or holy or upright. It is perfectly true that in the application of redemption, God does make people holy and upright. He renews them after his own image. He begins to do this in regeneration and carries it on in the work of sanctification. He will perfect it in glorification. But justification does not refer to this 
renewing or sanctifying grace of God. So again, keep that clearly in mind. Justification is not an act of God whereby He transforms you into righteousness. Justification is a declaration whereby He gives the verdict, you are righteous to the one who believes in the promise of the gospel. And it is this reality that led Luther to make this statement, which was so debated during the time of the Reformation, the interaction with the Roman Catholic Church, Luther said this in in Latin terms, simul justus et peccator, which means simultaneously righteous and sinner. He's referring to the one who embraces the gospel, the one who believes in the promise of God. What happens to that person the moment he believes in the gospel, that fiducia faith? He is justified. But what happens as a result of that justification? There is now a a new reality, and this reality is that that believer is simultaneously righteous and sinner. Simul justus et peccator. And of course, the Roman Catholic Church could not agree with this. But this was the heart of the Reformation. But it raises an important question, and and hopefully you're, you're thinking along with this. And the question is this, how can a righteous God declare that one who is inherently unrighteous is now to be regarded as righteous? How can God make that verdict? After all, Proverbs 17 verse 15 says this, he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike, are an abomination to the Lord. So, is there injustice with God in this act, in this declaration, this instantaneous act of justification? Is, is, he, is, is he doing, is he uh, somehow accomplishing some kind of abomination through justification, whereby he goes to the sinner who is unrighteous and unworthy and says, now, in my eyes, you are righteous. Not just partly righteous, but perfectly righteous. How does, how does God do that and still remain just? This is what leads us to the next term in our definitions. The term imputation. And this is very, very important because it is true that God cannot just justify willy-nilly. That would be injustice. He cannot merely close his eyes to sin and say, I'm going to pretend it doesn't exist. He cannot close his eyes to your sinfulness and say, I'm just going to wish it out of existence. Indeed, justification would be an abomination if there never was these two things. Number one, an actual payment for the unrighteousness committed by the sinner. And number two, an actual achievement of the righteousness committed to the sinner. Let me say that again. Justification would be unjust if there was no actual payment 
for the sins of that unrighteous individual. If there was no payment for sin, all the sins that that individual who's being justified, all the sins he ever committed or ever will commit, if there was no payment for that, then justification would be in injustice. Moreover, if there never was an actual achievement of righteousness that could be committed to the sinner, then again, the declaration of righteous would be unjust. But this is where imputation enters the equation. It's connected intricately with this element of justification. Now, what's imputation? Again, let's define this, and this is important as it relates to justification. Imputation, to impute, to impute, is the judicial reckoning, according to MacArthur and Mayhew, it's the judicial reckoning or forensic transfer of one person's sin or righteousness to another. Let me read that again. Imputation is, quote, the judicial reckoning or forensic transfer of one person's sin or righteousness to another. It is when God takes the sin, the actual sin, the guilt of one, and imputes it, transfers it to another's account. Or he takes the righteousness, the actual righteousness of one and imputes it or transfers it to the account of another. And one of the great texts that speaks to this is 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21, where Paul says that God made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in in him. Note the dual imputation that is included in that, that statement, that God took our sin from us and put it on the account of Jesus, and Jesus paid the penalty, and he did that so that we would then have applied to our account the righteousness of Jesus. Double imputation. So you could look at it this way. The imputation, the, the first imputation of our sin to Jesus' account looks like this. You have the sinner with all those marks against him, all his unrighteousness, all his sin is transferred to the account of one who never committed sin, but that one, Jesus Christ, pays the penalty. First half of our statement, 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. That's the imputation of the believer's unrighteousness to Jesus Christ. And then you have the reverse imputation. The imputation of the righteousness of Jesus Christ to the unrighteous sinner. So you see that sphere represented by the obedience of Jesus Christ. All those plus signals, if you could put it that way. All his obedience, 
All his righteousness is taken and is put in the account judicially of the sinner. Let me read Romans 3, 23 to 26 on this. Paul says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. There you have the payment of the sin, the propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness. Because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time, so that He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Notice especially that last statement, that in the plan of salvation, particularly in the concept of justification and imputation, that God remains just, perfectly just, as He justifies unrighteous sinners. And this is all because of Jesus Christ and His propitiation, His redemption, His atonement, and His righteousness. He paid the penalty. We are credited with His righteousness. This leads J.A. Packer to say this, when a man justifies the wicked, it is a miscarriage of justice which God hates. But when God justifies the ungodly, it is a miracle of grace for us to adore. Now that leads us to the third key term that we have to define here, infused righteousness. Infused righteousness. So we've defined justification as this instantaneous legal declaration whereby God pronounces forgiveness of sins and gives the verdict that the sinner is righteous. We then looked that that was possible because of the concept of imputation. That there is a real payment for sin that has been made for actual sin, and there is an actual righteousness that has been attained in the life of Jesus, and there's an exchange that takes place. But what about infused righteousness? Now, in contrast to the concept of imputed righteousness, the Roman Catholic Church asserts the idea of infused righteousness. Now, what, what's the big deal here? Now, Understand it this way, according to Roman Catholic dogma, justification occurs as righteousness is infused into the sinner and he begins to live out this righteousness. All right, this is different. According to Roman Catholic dogma, infused righteousness or justification is infused righteousness whereby the sinner receives help from God and he begins to live righteously and thereby, over time, just is, is, is being justified. So we see 
that according to Roman Catholic dogma, justification is not a judicial or forensic declaration, but is transformative. Justification is whereby God gives you the righteousness, which now you need to start living out if you are to be justified. If you don't live it out, you're not justified. And that process begins at baptism, and then it carries on for the rest of life. Justification is is no longer the act then of declaring the sinner righteous, but it becomes the act of making the sinner righteous. And there's a difference. And the gospel comes down to understanding that distinction. Does God give you the righteousness to live whereby you start to live it? And then he says, okay, now you're being justified. I'm now going to accept you as righteous. Or as the reformers taught as they broke away from Rome said, no, justification is instantaneous. According to the declaration of scripture, it's instantaneous. It is a judicial act whereby God declares us righteous. The Catechism of the Catholic Church says that justification is not only the remission of sins, but also the sanctification and renewal of the interior man. The Roman Catholic Church removes this important distinction between God's forensic act of justification and his transformative act of sanctification. It blurs the line. For the Roman Catholic Church, justification and sanctification are indistinguishable. And this leads one theologian to say this, where Rome teaches that one is finally justified by being sanctified, the Reformed conviction is that one is being sanctified because one has already been justified. Rather than working toward the verdict of divine vindication, the believer leaves the court justified in the joy that bears the fruit of faith. End quote. That's The difference between the biblical gospel and all other unbiblical versions of Christianity. It ultimately comes down to this. And this is what introduces the concept of merit into salvation. That God accepts you as righteous because you've done something to prove it. He accepts you as righteous because you've contributed something to the equation. And the reformers said... Absolutely not. When we study the scriptures, it is very clear. Justification is a judicial act. You don't contribute to it at all. Quoting from one Roman Catholic theologian, he says this, and now he critiques the reformers. He says, the reformers wrongly regarded justification as a merely external imputation of Christ's justice. And so they were obliged to hold that justification is identical in all men. Now stop there. We would absolutely affirm that. We would say absolutely that anyone in this room here, if you are justified, you possess the same righteousness in terms of your status as anyone else does who's justified. No distinction. No various levels. God looks upon you as a believer in his son Jesus Christ, as having the righteousness of Jesus. And there's no difference or variations among God's people. But as this theologian recognizes, he says, no, that, that's not what Roman Catholic dogma teaches. He goes on to say this, the Council of Trent, however, declared that the measure of grace of justification received varies in the individual person who is justified. 
according to the measure of God's free distribution and to the disposition and, now get this, the cooperation of the recipient himself. That's Roman Catholic teaching. That if he, Ott is his last name, Ludwig Ott, if he was here today, he'd say, well, there's various levels of of, of justification in this room, if he would look at you as believers, which I doubt he would, because you're anathema. But if he was addressing a Catholic audience, he'd say there's various levels of justification. And it's all according to how God decides to give you some, but also your level of cooperation in producing it. And like I said, this brings us to the heart of the gospel. And, and, and just a very practical implication of this is that, again, according to Roman Catholic dogma, you can never be guaranteed of salvation. Why? Because you've not been finally justified. It just doesn't exist in totality and, and, and in any kind of finality. Because you're still trying to get it. You're still trying to, trying to con- contribute to it. It's still in process. And this is why the reformers could not stay in Rome. And neither could we join together with Rome. Because the Bible is so clear that justification, and thank God it's this way, justification is a declaration. It's a declaration. And that leads us now to some essential characteristics, and I'll go through these quickly. Number one, as we think about the biblical doctrine of justification, number one, justification takes place in God's court. This is something God does. Here is the location of where the verdict is read. It's in God's court. Romans 3, 19 and 20 says this. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. There's the concept of condemnation. And then he goes on to say this, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified, quote, in his sight. This is where it matters in the sight of God. Romans 8 verse 33 again emphasizes the fact that it is God who justifies. God is the one who justifies. Justification takes place in God's courtroom and God is the one who presides as judge. He's the one who makes the determination. And this is what leads John Murray to say this, this truth that God justifies needs to be underlined. We do not justify ourselves. Justification is not our apology, nor is it the effect in us of a process of self-excusation. We make excuses for ourselves. It is not even our confession, nor the good feeling that may be induced in us by confession. Justification is an act that God does. It is what he does alone. Number two, justification pertains not to innocence, but to righteousness. This is the achievement of justification. It is inadequate for us to think that justification merely pertains to the forgiveness of sins. That would represent a return simply to the the state of Adam before the fall, where he was innocent. We don't want to go back there. Trust me. And this is the beauty of the gospel. It doesn't just take us back to where Adam was before Genesis chapter 3. Justification is so much more. Justification is is the declaration of positive righteousness. 
which means not just that we're innocent, but that we're righteous. And there's a world of difference between those two statuses. When you're justified, you're not just declared innocent. You're not just forgiven of sin, but you are declared to be righteous. And that's an amazing thought. Paul says in Romans 3 verse 21 to 22 that that apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made manifest. Not just innocence, but righteousness. And not just any righteousness, but it's the righteousness of the infinitely righteous God. It's been made manifest. Romans 4, verses 3 to 5. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited not as innocence, but as righteousness. Let me move ahead to number three. Justification is grounded upon the righteousness of Christ. This is the ground of justification. So the location of justification was in God's sight. The the focus of justification was, was not just innocence, but it was righteousness. Now the ground of justification here is the righteousness of Christ. Now note this. Our faith is the means of justification, but it is not the ground of justification. That's so important to remember. We are justified by or through faith, not because of faith. Not because of faith. Instead, we are justified because of or on account of the actions of Jesus Christ. And there's, again, a difference so if, if I was to ask you, are you justified? And your answer would be yes. My follow-up question would be, okay, tell me about that. You shouldn't say, well, I was justified because I believed. That would be an incorrect answer and it would diminish the work of Jesus Christ. Now you'd say, well, I've been justified through faith, but the ground of my justification is found only one place. And that's in the actions of Jesus Christ. Remember, justification is the declaration that a sinner is righteous, but that declaration cannot be made arbitrarily. As I said, there had to be the actual payment of sin and the actual achievement of righteousness, and faith is neither of those. Faith is not the payment for sin, and faith is not the achievement of righteousness. This is why the acts of imputation are so crucial. Again, John Murray says this, the only righteousness conceivable that will meet the requirements of our situation as sinners and meet the requirements of a full and irrevocable justification is the righteousness of Christ. He goes on to say this, the law of God has both penal sanctions and positive demands. It demands not only the full discharge of its precepts, but also the infliction of penalty for all infractions and shortcomings. It is this twofold demand of the law of God which is taken into account when we speak of the active and passive obedience of Christ. Christ, as the vicar of his people, came under the curse of condemnation due to sin 
And he also fulfilled the law of God in all its positive requirements. In other words, he took care of the guilt of sin and perfectly fulfilled the demands of righteousness. He perfectly met both the penal and the preceptive requirements of God's law. The passive obedience refers to the former and the active obedience to the latter. Remember, I said before, justification would be unjust if there was not an actual payment for all of your sins and an actual achievement of righteousness that is credited to your account. And that's what the atonement of Jesus Christ does. Through his passive obedience, theologians will call it passive obedience. It's just a a term that they use, not the best, but that's what's in our parlance today. The passive obedience refers to the fact that he has paid for the penalty of your sin. His active obedience is the fact that he's lived the righteous life that is now credited to your account. He's done both. He's taken care of the penalty and the precepts of God's moral requirements. Number four, justification is applied through faith alone. Justification is applied through faith alone. This is the means of justification. Remember, faith is not the ground of justification, but it is the means of justification. The one who believes in the gospel is not justified through his works of increasing righteousness. Rather, the one who believes, who has this fiducia faith, is justified on the basis of, or through, I should say, through faith alone. Through faith alone. Romans 3 verse 28 says this, For we maintain that man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. You could look at it this way. As justification is applied to the sinner, faith is the channel through which it comes. And remember, even this faith is a gift. Ephesians 2 verse 8 to 10 or 8 to 9 emphasizes the fact this is a gift of God. Faith is a gift of God. But this faith, as we embrace the gospel, as we believe its promises are for us, that then becomes the channel through which God applies that verdict. Look at Galatians 2.16 as well. We are justified by faith in Christ. Number five, justification is granted according to grace alone. This is the motivation of justification. The motivation. And this is very closely connected to the previous one. Now, understand that the the religions of this world all emphasize human achievement as the motivation for why God should accept the sinner into heaven. But the biblical gospel is that God's justification is motivated according to grace, not works. According to grace, not merit. Not because you're someone special, you deserve it, you've worked better than others, Nothing to do with that whatsoever. Romans 3, 23 to 24 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all, are being just, all have been justified as a gift by His grace. By His grace. Romans four sixteen. For this reason it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace. Romans five seventeen speaks of the gift of, of righteousness. Number six, justification 
does lead to the increasing production of righteousness. This is the fruit of justification. And I've said this before about both repentance and faith, that we must distinguish between those things and their fruit. And justification, too, has fruit. We read of that already by that quote by Horton, who says that the difference between biblical Christianity and Roman Catholicism is that in Roman Catholicism, the adherent is constantly trying to get that vindication, whereas in biblical Christianity, the sinner leaves the courtroom with the vindication, joyful and ready for good works. This is the focus of James, and we can look at James chapter 2, verse 17 to 20, where, where James focuses on the proving or the demonstration of salvific faith. And he says this, even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. But show me your faith without works, and I will show you my faith by my works. In other words, can you show faith without works? The answer is no. It remains an an, an abstraction. But I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? You cannot demonstrate your faith apart from this. And justification, when it happens, will always be accompanied by and and, and followed by sanctification. Again, these are connected, but they're distinct. And that's important to remember. And this is what led Calvin to say this, it is therefore faith alone which justifies. And yet the faith which justifies is not alone. Again, we must hold up that distinction between justification and sanctification. Don't blur the lines. Don't let them bleed into each other. They're distinct, but though they're distinct, they're chain links. You can't pull them apart. They, they belong with one another. And so when a, a, a person, a sinner, is indeed justified, sanctification falls right on its heels. It always will. Finally, number seven, justification is once and for all. This is the efficacy of justification. Paul refers to it in Romans chapter 8 verse 1 when he says, Therefore, there is now no what? Condemnation. When there's justification, there is now and forever there will never be condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Or when we look at this golden chain of Romans 8, 29 to 30, we read this, that those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, the same group, he also glorified. In other words, there's no loss as you move from justification to glorification. Justification is once and for all, never going back ever again, never again hearing condemnation. That's the beauty of justification, understood biblically, that if you're truly justified, you will never hear the words of condemnation from the judge who is now your father. Never. No condemnation. That means what it says. No condemnation. In Romans 5 verse 1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have 
peace. The justification is spoken of as a completed act. The possession of peace is spoken of as an ongoing reality. We have this relationship of peace. And this is what leads Grudem to say this. God can never nor will ever take vengeance on us for past sins. Or make us pay the penalty that is due for them. Or punish us out of wrath or for the purpose of doing us harm. When you've embraced the promise of the gospel by faith, this justification is yours. It is the promise of the gospel. It promises no condemnation. It promises the pronunciation of righteousness. Of course, that's so hard for us to understand because we're so drawn towards two things. Our own participation in it that we have to somehow contribute righteousness. And that is a whole heresy of its own. Or the other problem we have with this, can it be? Can can this really be? That I, I, I who has committed this sin and, and unrighteousness can possess the righteousness of Jesus Christ and that God will look on me, me, as he looks on his son Jesus? How can that be? We sang about it this, this evening already, and can it be? Well, that's the promise of the gospel. It can be. For those who embrace Jesus by faith, believe in the promise. And as we close tonight, as we reflect on this wonderful implication, let me just read a little bit from that hymn that we sang, His Robes for Mine. His Robes for Mine, a wonderful exchange. Clothed in my sin, Christ suffered neath God's rage. Draped in his righteousness, I'm justified. In Christ I live, for in my place he died. His robes for mine, what cause have I for dread? God's daunting law, Christ mastered in my stead. Faultless I stand with righteous works not mine, saved by my Lord's vicarious death and life. His robes for mine, God's justice is appeased. Jesus is crushed and thus the Father's pleased. Christ drank God's wrath on sin, then cried, tis done. Sin's wage is paid. Propitiation won. His robes for mine, such anguish none can know. Christ, God's beloved, condemned as though his foe. He, as though I, accursed and left alone. I, as though he, embraced and welcomed home. I cling to Christ and marvel at the cost. Jesus forsaken, God estranged from God. Bought by such love, my life is not my own. My praise, my all, shall be 
for Christ alone. Let's pray. Indeed, as we study this doctrine, as you have revealed it in your word, Father, we are brought to this question, how can this be? This doctrine of justification reduces us to this place where we we acknowledge no merit of our own, no ability of our own, And we acknowledge the incredible grace that you have in salvation. And that in this, what you have done to us who are in Christ, you remain both just and the justifier. Never having overlooked your own law, you fulfilled it by doing everything that we deserved to Christ and then taking everything that he did and he deserved And accounting it to our stead. And this does lead us to that final place where we no longer just ask the question. We respond in praise and glory. And we say hallelujah. What a great savior. It's in the name of Christ we sing this. Amen.